I did a talk um, to a small group of um, recovering sex addicts on the book, and I was a little concerned about how I was going to go across. And there was a small group, but about two or three of the guys started breaking down crying because mm-hmm. they realized that the shame that they were trying to recover from from their behavior wasn't all about them. It was about what they had internalized and identified with with their fathers. Mm-hmm. So they had this moment of grief and relief that, oh, it's not all my shame. I'm responsible for my behavior, but this shame I'm trying to undo isn't about my behavior. It's about what I witnessed. It's Uh. both. Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Dr. Ken Adams will be joining Faithful and True's directors, clinical director Jim Farm on a great conversation that they had discussing Ken Adams' new book, A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts. Uh, This is the second opportunity that Jim has had uh, to do a podcast with Ken Adams, and I think you'll find the following podcast to be very interesting. Here now is Jim Farm and Ken Adams. All right. Hey, Ken, we're we're, we're back at it again after the last podcast we did on Unmeshment, which was a really popular one, by the way, on on our uh, uh, podcast here at Faithful and True. So I appreciate you uh, joining us again here today. Nice to be with you, Jim. My pleasure. Yeah, anxious to talk about and excited about the new book. Yeah, so so if you wouldn't mind telling our uh, uh, listeners the title of the book, I just got done reading it over the weekend. I actually just read the whole thing right through. I enjoyed it. Oh, wow. I didn't even shut. I didn't even shut it down to take a break. Well, well, yeah, it's called uh, "Light in the Dark: uh, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts." It's the first book ever written on adults who grew up in sexually addicted family systems. And, you know, it patterns itself after uh, the very solid research and literature on adult children of alcoholics that emerged in the 80s, which really opened the field of recovery, uh, which where I personally started my own journey. And a lot of people started their journey um, of recovery. And it also helped to begin to arrest the generational trauma and the repetition of alcoholism. So dealing with adult children is, is an attempt to you know, the buck stops here kind of lying in the sand, right? So the same thing that we had hoped with this book is that we were going to make an attempt to bring to people's awareness, uh, both professionals and the public, that look at, we have to look at these adult children because they've been impacted. And if we can get them conscious of what's happened, they may stop passing on the sexually addicted system dynamics to the children because our the point in our book and by the way, my co-authors, Dr. Mary Meyer and Cully Vandegaard, the three of us put this book together um, and I, I think successfully became one voice in it, which was hard to do, but we did do that. Yeah. Um, is, is that one of the things that we, one of the, the critical theme of the book is the, is the link, link of generational trauma and sexually addictive family systems is the concept of sexual shame. That I, I, my sexuality is bad, fundamentally bad, and and so you can you can have a generation here 
a, a sex addict having affairs, porn, etc., partner, wife, reacting to that, the system organizes around that. We can talk about some of those characteristics. Those children are impacted. They grow up and they don't really deal with their impact. Maybe they deal with things around there, but nobody says you're an adult child of a sex addict. And that's why you carry so much sexual shame. They have children. These children do not witness directly the trauma of betrayal or the hypervigilance or the partner pulling them into the marital uh, conflict. But they, but the parents who were the adult children are hypervigilant, paranoid around that child's sexuality. So as they emerge naturally, these adult children will start to control, react. And all of a sudden that kid innocently in their own curiosity begins to feel bad over something they're not supposed to feel bad about. And they had no direct impact from the original sex addict in the family. Yeah. That, so, that generational sexual shame is our is the link that we put together that I think has to really come to an end here. So is it is it possible then, Ken, that that some kids they might not even witnessed, exposed to any of the sexual addictive behavior, but it's just the dynamics that went along with that. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, sure. Just just the so I'm I'm suggesting that both within the system itself. The system being this family has a sex addict acting out. But I'm also saying two generations down oh. that that grandchild, having not witnessed anything with the grandparent, is being impacted by the adult child who who's carrying the burden of witnessing it that, and experiencing that in their family. And that shame is carried out as... Uh, control around sexuality, excessive control, or excessive permissiveness, extremes. And so the kid, grandchild, has their first girlfriend or first crush, or maybe they they ask about masturbation or something benign, and this adult child reacts extremely. You're just like my father, right? And pretty soon that shame is being transported down generations. So yes, I'm talking about within the family, you don't need to witness the behavior because these families have characteristics such as um, little intimacy or affection between parents, uh, no real appropriate playfulness or flirtation, um, emotionally disengaged, conflict avoidant, um, excessive conflict between the parents, one parent's inability to protect the other, uh, duplicity, around sexual messages. So on one hand, we have the the parent who's the addict, maybe they're saying sexual remarks about bodies of their daughter's girlfriends. Oh, she looks really hot. Or maybe they're using inappropriate language about gender or something, the kids. And on the other hand, the other parent's very moralistic, very controlling, very overbearing on sexuality. So these systems often have duplicit messages about sexuality. So the kid may not even witness what's going on, but be impacted by the system dynamic that's being impacted by the betrayal. And then the partners need to control, uh, seek safety, I guess is the way to say that now, around that. So you have, so duplicity around sexual matters 
in family systems is a critical piece of that sexually addictive system. Um, you know, so they'll be very moralistic on one hand, right? Don't you dare talk about sex, but over here, I got a private stash, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the kid bears the burden of the shame. Yeah. Right. And so the kid walks in and finds that used to find your dad's pornography stash. You don't find it anymore. You find it on the computer, right? <laughs> yes. so the kid walks in, finds the dad's pornography stash, innocently begins to say, Oh, this is something. Mom walks in and she, because she's been betrayed and she can't control her husband, she dominates and shames the boy or the daughter. Oh. And the and the son or the daughter collapses under the weight of that reactive position on the spouse who's angry with her husband. And then the kid absorbs the shame as if I'm bad. My curiosity is bad. Wow. You know? And so now I have a conflict. I'm both interested in the person at school I have a crush on, but I don't dare have those feelings. And pretty soon I'm in conflict. Now I grow up and I have a sexually addictive behavior, or I'm sexually shut down, or I marry a sex addict, right? Yeah. So that system dynamic, I don't even have to witness the behavior, is enough to do it. And I have some data, I think you and I were talking about this, I've done some survey, uh, and some questions uh, on adult children, I have 100 uh, respondents, and um, most, so I've asked about 15 questions about how they were impacted and so forth, and High numbers report at 80, I have it sitting over here. I got to get to my cheat sheet. But I think 88% um, report being struggling with their sexuality because of their parents' sexually addictive behavior. But also 62% reported um, uh, being impacted by their by the other parent. 74% um, report that they felt like the emotional caretaker of the parent. So both parents in the system are now impacting the child who is now burdening what is not theirs to burden. Sure. So so, so what you're saying is not only the addict's behavior, but it's also to a certain degree how the spouse is responding to that within the yeah, family. So now, yeah, and I want to be careful here because I know the spouses have taken blame over the years mm -hmm. from, from professional circles and, and, and also from their addicts. So nobody's saying they're at fault for the addict's behavior. Yeah. But our book is adult child sensitive. It is not adult. It is not addict sensitive. It is not partner sensitive. We're looking at the story strictly through the eyes of the adult child. And they're saying, look at your marital disagreement and his, his or her inappropriate sexual behavior and your reaction to it are a problem to me. Yeah. Don't burden me with either one of these. I don't want to be. I don't want to be in a family where I have duplicit messages about sex. Get, sex, get your act together, Dad. And I don't want you, Mom, controlling or reacting to my sexuality or Dad's in front of me. Right. So they're saying both of you clean up your act. Mm -hmm. and, and so, just for your audience, please know that while we understand that. Is an injustice if you're a partner of a sex addict, right? You didn't ask for this, mm -hmm. right? And now you got a kid who's angry with you too, and that doesn't feel fair. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, but it is the sober reality. Yeah. And in the other thing we know is that, of course, parents will fight. Some of these systems will fight about sexual matters. 
in front of the kids. And so the kids will report as adults, uh, I was impacted by both of you complaining about dad, you talking inappropriately about women in front of me. I was embarrassed and mom, you calling out dad in front of me. So they're saying both of you are burdening me. Oh, oh. And so again, so again, that isn't meant to be insensitive to the injustice. It's meant to be sensitive strictly to the adult child of uh, of sexually addicted family systems. Yeah, yeah I appreciate you saying that because we hear that a lot from spouses that, of course, now, now I'm the problem, you know, or, you know. Yeah, that- and, and that's really, it's it's unfair, but it is, again, that what we're after isn't, <laughs> it's to say what's true. Yeah. Right. And so what's true for the adult child isn't true necessarily for the spouse, right? And it used to be that the adult child's story was um, consumed under the partner trauma model. Everybody assumed that the kids had the same betrayal as the partner. And they have a shared variance. They have a shared part of the story, but it's different. And one of the one of the things you hear from partners is how unjust it feels that their kid still loves their father, even though he's betrayed her, right? Yeah. And and so she sometimes will make an effort to get to turn that kid against the father. In fact, uh, just to give you a little data, um, 62% of those 100 uh, adult children report, I was encouraged by my other parent to find fault or mistrust the parent with the sexually addictive behavior. Six out of 10. Mm. You know, um, over half of them felt disloyal if they didn't side with the other parents. So it isn't fault finding. It's just laying out the story. Yeah. I did a podcast uh, last week, I think it was, or two, last week, with um, uh, two uh, therapists, uh, one therapist and one recovering partner. And I was, I was, and both of them worked with partners. That was their, that was their focus. And I was. I was a little concerned about how that would be taken. They were relieved. They had no problem acknowledging, yeah, I see that. I see that's part of my journey is to take responsibility for my part of it. So I could, I saw in them that even though they, they were felt a bit challenged by the data and the reporting, they also felt a bit of a relief that at least somebody's naming the story for what it is. I can find my place in the recovery process and the immense process, and I could turn the rest over to him or her. Yeah. Right. So hopefully for your listeners, it just ultimately provides some clarity about where the lines in the sand are, about yeah. who whose responsibility is what, rather than get, and getting out of this blaming and finding justice for what is not a just situation, right? There is no, the justice is in the healing and coming to terms with this and not passing it on. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I, I like that because I, I think just being able to pursue the truth allows us for an, an opportunity or an invitation to, to, to move into healing or into some recovery. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think so too. And, you know, some of this truths are hard, are hard to see, you know, and um, especially when you start looking at the system as a whole, right. Um, so we see it. We also see in these family systems sometimes again comments, degrading comments about gender or body, or over sexualized comments um, and so forth, inappropriate humor and sexual jokes, or extreme moralism. 
like I know you have a fairly uh, uh, wide religious audience. Mm-hmm. And so it, there's a natural tendency to link sexually addictive behavior to moral failure. And obviously, to some degree, it is. People are, are violating their value system, right? And most addicts will tell you that. But but the truth is, that's not what addiction is. It's consequential in that way. But it, we have very moral, good people who have addictions, right? Okay. And so, so sometimes, uh, understandably, the system will turn to excessive control morally as a as a response to the inappropriate behavior and again what's happening to the kids is they don't know what's happening behind the scenes necessarily maybe they've picked up a little bit but they're feeling the weight of that shaming yeah and they're downloading that shaming they're internalizing they're assimilating the shaming in their sexuality now does that mean you should be willy-nilly and give them permission to do whatever they want and look at porn all day well of course not <laughs> so we so we also see some permissiveness in these systems over sexualized systems no boundaries but we tend to see more more control rigidity and moralism in the systems i i don't have any clear data for you but you probably know this as a clinician you do tend to get more reports of people trying to control than sending their kids off into polyamorous relationships yeah. although i have had that well i've had <laughs> parents who say yeah i hope they find uh, multiple partners you know and yeah i have had permissive systems too that have impacted these adult children we tend to hear more of the other kind of system the more ex- the other s- extreme but both yeah. extremes will be trouble here yeah well there's stories you know i've heard them where you know teenagers are watching just a regular tv show and a couple's kissing on tv just kissing nothing right, more, not right. the parent mom or dad mom more more times than not covering the the teenager's eyes and he or she is wondering what the heck they're just kissing well you know that's that's unfortunately you know we see that sort of religion aside we we see that in these systems in which there's shaming around sexuality because of someone's excessive behavior that maybe is in the current generation maybe it was in the previous generation and so there's this taboo around sexual education, you know, and I know that's a bit of a, a hot topic these days, and we'll, we'll keep it strict to the basics. But um, sometimes sex education is viewed as permission giving. So there's a there's an attempt to control all access to exposure. But what happens is you leave the kid immature. They, about a part of them that's emerging, testosterone and all these hormones in both boys and girls are starting to emerge between 10 and 12. And, you know, they're on fire and someone's covering their eyes and they can't figure out they need help, right? They need a non-shaming environment. And these sexually addicted systems have another agenda going on in which somebody's keeping secrets about his behavior or her behavior, someone else trying to control that person and the kids are the kids are um, casualties, right? Yeah. And so they, it, it, I, and I'll let you take it over. But we have characteristics and we have roles that we we've identified, which I'm happy to. to yeah. Some. Yeah. Let's go through some of the characteristics. One of the ones that I found interesting is that you know, adult children of sex addicts um, confuse appropriate sexual behavior for others and themselves. Yes. Yeah, so so can imagine that kid. 
kind of feeling the weight of those that confusing sort of messages, right? Uh, someone's act, someone's out of control, has no has no rules. Somebody else is trying to over control me, so I get into, and I'm confused now about my own natural sexual curiosity and behavior. So I get into adolescence and young adulthood, and I can't read the tea leaves. I don't know if you're trying to offend me, violate me, or if you're just innocently interested in me, right? So I misread the cues. Yeah. And um, I can't figure out. And then I may overreact to what's a, a, a simple flirtation to get my attention. And I might miss a love opportunity, or I might cover up or deny somebody who's more predatory. Right. right? So I don't read the signals well. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm now confused about my own relationship to my own interest. So if I can, if I'm not clear about who I am, how can I figure out who you are, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that many times with the guys coming to our workshops. Is you know they might say, well, you know, I I mistakenly thought she was smiling at me, meant she wanted to have sex with me. Right, yeah. right, right. You can hear that sexualized environment, right? Yeah. Now sometimes addicts ad, addicts over sexualize a lot of behaviors, and if you're in your full blown addiction. Um, sexual addiction, as you know, causes an over-sexualization, over-cues are not, not meant in most circles to be sexual, right? That's and right. There's some evidence that, you know, sex addicts can have a predisposition to hyper-cue uh, reaction sexually and or they just come from backgrounds like this where there was so much sexualization and inappropriateness that I just sort of, it was... It was the end point of my development that I should view everything through a sexual filter. Either it's bad or I should have it all, right? These yeah. extremes, right? And yeah. yes, they'll they'll read a little so a sex addict who who so one of our roles in the sexually addicted family system is called the seducer, the addict, or not surprising. One of the kids identifies with the addict and becomes an addict himself or herself. And we're talking both men and women now, by the way. I did a talk um, to a small group of um, recovering sex addicts. And I was, it was my first professional talk was just two months ago. Or, no, three months ago on the book. And I was a little concerned about how I was going to go across. And there was a small group, but about two or three of the guys started breaking down crying because mm-hmm. they realized that the shame that they were trying to recover from, from their behavior wasn't all about them. It was about what they had internalized and identified with, with their fathers. Mm-hmm. So they had this moment of grief and relief that, oh, it's not all my shame. I'm responsible for my behavior, but this shame I'm trying to undo isn't about my behavior. It's about what I witnessed. It's Uh, both. uh, And so I was a really powerful, I remember this one guy's face, he was breaking down and he was so in the kind of, the kind of grief you see when someone's relieved that someone's named, named them, you know? mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, one of the other things I have been preaching <laughs> about with this book is that um, without the right narrative, the totality of healing opportunities isn't available to you. So a lot of these adult children have been treated under a variety of treatment models, effective ones, good ones, but they haven't really nailed it for them. They haven't said, oh, this is your story. Let's start with this window. 
yeah. and get a sense about what you grew up with. And then let's bring in all our wonderful new treatment models. And, our, you know, we have lots of them out there, as you know, yeah. that are very effective. Addiction, partner trauma, IFS, EMDR, you know, on, the list goes on. Lots of good stuff out there. But it's almost the difference between going to a therapist who who does good work with you, but they don't quite get you versus going to a therapist where you go, oh, that guy, that woman, they really get me. I feel seen, right? And that's the purpose of getting the right frame is, is the adult child, the, the, the narrative has to start here before you bring in your models. We find that with some of the enmeshment therapists on our, on our list, you know, that we, we're getting some feedback from people going to our list for enmeshment therapists that they're not really getting it. Yeah. And my suspicion is, is that what's happening is that the, the therapists who were trained or, or in the workshop on the best practices are too quickly moving to their favorite treatment models and not staying with the enmeshment narrative long enough yeah. for the client to feel seen before they move to their models. So this, this adult child um, narrative is meant to capture and give therapists an opportunity to, to help their clients. So I, you know, I don't know if there's other characteristics you want to go over. I'm going to try to see if you have ones. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, a couple of the other ones that, that jump out at me and then we'll kind of get into some of the roles that you identified um, is, is really uncomfortable, you know, with their own bodies and gender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, you can imagine as I'm guessing, as your listeners are talking, you know, that, that this is a family who's uncomfortable to touch, right? Or it, or the touch is inappropriate. You know, people are walking around in nightgowns where they shouldn't be or no clothes or doing massages. And, you know, there's edgy sexualized behavior or there's a phobic reaction to the body in these systems. And so the kid wants to be hugged, wants to be held, wants to be loved, right? And um, all of a sudden, or they get, or the, or they get to be a, a young woman, adolescent young woman starts to develop, and her sexually addicted father uh, starts to shut down and shows her no more affection because he's afraid he's going to sexualize her, right? Mm-hmm. And so we've seen that happen too, where the girls get confused, um, or the opposite, the mother starts saying, "Boy, you you look really good in your tight jeans." you know, to the, who's, maybe she's the sex addict, you know, into mm-hmm. the boy. So they, they, there's a lot of, there's a lot of discomfort, avoidance, and inappropriateness around gender and body. That again, these children download, then they become adults, and they try to make love, and they're uncomfortable. They don't want yeah. to take the clothes off, or or they're taking the clothes off at the wrong time, and they're, and they're being ex- exhibitionistic, right? They, they lack they lack a sort of comfort in a, a sort of an adult relationship with their own, a, 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 an unshaming, an unshamed relationship with their own body and gender. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen, I've seen it as well. Maybe you can speak to this a little bit where, you know, maybe the, um, it's not so much the lack of blessing that person's, you know, physical or sexual development, the child's, but maybe it's pointing things out like, Hey, I see you're going through puberty, or I, I notice you're starting to develop. Mm-hmm. 
It's the last thing a kid wants to hear, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, you know, right. They don't even want to be seen with their parents, yet alone point out their body changes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, parenting is hard enough. Yeah. Uh, particularly around sexual matters. I mean, you know, being a parent in this day and age, you know, I have a 20, we talked about our kids before, I have a 20 year old, uh, soon to be 21. And so he grew up in the technology world, you know, access to that stuff. So conversations were interesting about that and, and, you know, sensitive, but it's hard enough to have that. But if you're in a sexually addicted system where there's a whole other story going on, makes it even difficult because you're reacting to more than just the kid's development. Yeah. And you're likely not reacting in ways that are in the best interest of the child. The The parent is reacting in terms of their feelings and behavior to what's happening in the sexual addiction behavior or the attempt to control it. So not surprising, these kids as adults struggle with their discomfort around yeah. that. Yeah. Last one before we get into the roles, Ken, I just wonder, one of the other characteristics that you, you listed here is just the um, difficulty being able to express vulnerability and trust in relationships. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Trust is a casualty in these systems, right? So the idea that people can separate and, and mother's not calling or father's not calling and checking up on you and where you at and what are you doing? And I know you've been with somebody and, you know, this, so we have this overt accusatory, the addiction seeping into the consciousness of the family. So there's a, there's a buzz around loyalty issues going on in the kids' ears. And trust me, the kids hear it, right? The parents <laughs> think they don't, but trust me, the kids do. We even have some people reporting that even though they never witnessed their parents fighting, there was a percentage that still knew about the addiction they could, they could tell. Uh -huh. So, and so there's a buzz around that, that, um, and then once, and in many systems, the, the a lot of this stuff is overtly intrusive. The kids do know the parent that one parent's been betrayed. And when they pick up that the parent's been betrayed and hurt, they identify with that pain and they say, I'm not going to trust anybody either. Look what you did to mommy. Yeah. Right? That's a direct impact of the betrayal is is the fact that they either feel or pick up or uh, sadly are drawn in by the injured parent to comfort them that's that makes it worse for that kid so again it's enough that the kid witnesses the betrayal but then if the kid is drawn in by the parent to soothe and comfort the wounded betrayed partner that kid grows up having a very difficult time trusting mm. on two fronts the addict's behavior and the over-identification with the partner who has been betrayed. Yeah. And they, 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 it's, it almost becomes next to impossible to extend trust in love relationships. It's a little dramatized, but it's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It speaks almost to that attachment, right? Learned attachment. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you, you you got into, you know, identifying the roles that oftentimes, you know, the, these kids end up playing, you know, uh, growing up. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know, you know, the one, first one you identified was the hero, the moral hero, or uh, was it the champion? Is that another term for that? What, what is that? Yeah. 
So, you know, in, in dysfunctional family systems, and we learned a lot about this in alcoholic family system literature, the adult children literature, is kids will adopt a role to keep the system afloat. So if mom and dad are drunk, the, the one of the kids becomes a parentified responsible child. So the adult child of the alcoholic says, oh yeah, that was me. I, I now see that I've mistaken my identity for being overly responsible because now I find myself as an adult signing up for things to be responsible for I want nothing to do with. So now I can de-roll. Now I can begin to see that I have a choice, right? So the purpose of identifying the role is to begin to notice the impact of the system, what you got stuck in, and then to invite you to choose to de-roll from that role so you don't view it as your identity. So the, the roles that we identified, so in the sexually addicted system, our responsible child was the moral champion, the moral hero. This is the kid who says, I'm going to cover up the family shame. I'm going to be the pastor, the rabbi, the priest, the policeman. I'm going to be the self-righteous um, moral upright citizen that no that people are not going to see, and I'm going to carry the burden of my family shame out into the, the world. And the trouble is, is this kid often turns into somebody who's duplicit himself. Mm. On one hand, he's he's morally chasing down people to to impose rules. Right, that's yeah. why you've got the police officers and the and the priests and the pastors. I'm going to be the rule definer because nobody was running playing by the rules over here. Well, but by the way, I'm not going to tell you I have a secret stash over here with sexually compulsive behavior, right? So these, these kids often burden the family shame, over become overly conscientious, too responsible moralistically for everybody's fight. They're fighting everybody's moral fight. And we need people like that. Don't get me wrong. But it's important that these adult children begin to say, wait a minute, this is this particular moment is not my moral fight. It's time for me to take care of myself instead. We also identified the emotional uh, caretaker. This is the kid who tunes into the pain of the family, the comforter, the caretaker. Oftentimes a sensitive girl or boy says mommy's hurting or even daddy's hurting. I'm going to soothe both of them. Mm -hmm. Not surprising that young girl or young boy grows up and picks an addict. Yeah. Yeah. Or becomes um, a counselor, maybe. Or becomes a therapist. That's right. That's <laughs> right. You present company excluded you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but yes, they become somebody in the helping professions, the massage therapist, the nurse, the therapist, the doctor, right? Uh, they become the soother and the comforter of mommy and they lose track and they don't really have a life for themselves and they wind up picking a partner they have to fix and and you know all of us have our imperfections and our romances and we have to find our way but these people are these people are marrying people they probably should send to therapy right mm -hmm. and then <laughs> a close cousin to that role is the surrogate spouse this is somebody who directly i see mommy daddy's betrayed you i will be your new stable lover boy yeah I'm, yeah. So this is what I wrote about in Silently Seduced and When He's Married to Mom. This is the boy or the girl who serves as a surrogate. So it's a more entrapped role than just a caretaker. It has that part of it. But now it feels a little icky or it feels a little bit too close. Or I don't want to be your husband. I don't want to go to the show with you or travel with you. You're supposed to travel with dad. But dad's off having an affair. So she takes me off 
on vacation with her. So this is the surrogate spouse role. So yeah. we identified that as separate in the system. Yeah, I love I love that you were used that word icky because whenever I hear a client say that, my mind automatically goes to that icky or gross. You know? That's right. That's right. And so, by close. the way, we, we spoke about this in that last podcast with, that we did with you with Enmeshman. If listeners want to go back to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So that that the enmeshment dynamic is so. Of course, you can see enmeshment in the system between a number of the roles, but the the enmeshment too close, too dependent is how we think about that. Clearly, is present in the surrogate spouse role. The next role we spoke of just a little while ago, the the addict seducer. This is the kid who says, "Oh, this this parent is helpless and weak. I'm not identifying with him or her, but this person's got all the power. They get to. They don't have to play by the rules. They can do what they want." They come home what they want. They have sex with whom they want to. I'm going to identify with their power. I'm going to become that. Yeah. Or maybe daddy sexualized me as a young girl or an adolescent. So I'm going to become the sexualized girlfriend. And now I'll go out and be the sexualized woman. I overvalue sexuality and I turn into my own seductress and so forth. So this is the, this is the role that's, again, specific to the sexually addicted system. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And, and then the final one is the truth teller. This is a kid, both as a child and or as an adult, that says, oh, no, I see what the heck's going on. I'm going to put it in your face. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to tell on you. I'm going to tell mom. I'm going to tell dad. I'm going to keep telling you. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to call you out on the at the Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to be the one in your face. So this is a kid and or adult who might enter recovery. Yeah. Right. And say, oh, so this is, you know, you're somebody who re- reads my book might inadvertently become your truth teller. Be careful that you don't start, <laughs> you don't start sending the book off for Christmas presents or something, you know, uh, and be careful. The truth teller, nobody wants to know the truth in these systems. They yeah. may need to know the truth, but typically they're not open to it. So the yeah. truth can get scapegoated. Yeah. I, I, when I read that in the book, it, it's so true is that. They end up holding the. They end up being the problem rather than the real problem, right? No question. So the family starts talking about them. You must be in a cult with this therapist you're seeing. Or what are you talking about, Dad? 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 How do you know Dad had affairs? Or, you know? And so what's wrong with taking care of Mom? And so on and so forth. So yeah. So these are the these are the roles that we identified specific to the sexually addicted system, different than the alcoholic system, although. You know, um, in the book, my uh, co-authors and I all told our personal stories, and I, I'm pretty certain, if I remember correctly, both of them also had alcoholic parents and sexually addicted parents. So it's not uncommon to see a, a, a sort of wedding or marrying of both of those addictions in, in the system. The trouble is, is if you go to an adult child of an alcoholic meeting, most people aren't talking about their sexually addicted parent, right? It's kind yeah. of a taboo, yeah. you know, even in the recovery field, you don't really bring that up, right? There's a shame to that. Yeah. So that puts the truth teller in a pretty risky position because then there's that potential of the the relationship breaking off. And you, you had this this uh, saying that just jumped out at me in, in, in the where, where you're talking about the truth teller in the, in the sense, or maybe it was later in the book where you talked about, you know, part of the healing process then is, you know, starting to, work on a family of choice rather than a family of obligation. I think, I think might've been the, the way you worded it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that fits, 
that fits both with the MS system as well as the sexually addictive system, is that you really do need to create a family of choice so that you can better uh, differentiate from your sexually addictive system. So part of recovery, while it isn't to necessarily get in your parents' faces and confront them at the dinner table, it might mean, look at dad, if you're going to keep making sexual remarks about women around me and my kids, we're going to have to leave, right? You're not trying to train your parent, but you're setting a boundary with yourself. So Recovering adult children need to be prepared. Adult children sex addicts need to be prepared to have a differentiated self when they show up for those family dinners. And mom and or mom says, you know, I want to tell you about your dad. He's been out again. You know, mom, I'm I'm really no longer available to hear about that. You two need to work this out, right? So there needs to be, in order to do that, you do need a support system. You do need a family of choice. Um, otherwise, you're too dependent on your parents and your siblings, and you're likely to cave into the system's need to stick your head in the sand. Yeah, yeah. And um, so so recovery means seeing the system for what it is, seeing the roles for what they are, seeing the characteristics that you carry, um, and beginning to have a differentiated self and a family of choice, you know. Um, yeah. Boundaries. Another thing that you brought up there, and I think it's under your recovery guidelines, is is you know beginning to establish boundaries. And and I think for you know a lot of the people that we that we work with clients, you know, oftentimes they've seen boundaries as something that's restrictive or you know not permitting me to do something rather than something that's protective because maybe boundaries weren't necessarily protective for them. That's right. That's right. Yeah, learning to live within limits my limits, you know, is sort of, um, it's it's an act of humility, right? It's acknowledging who I am rather than who I think I should be. That was Bill Wilson, by the way, one of Alcoholics Anonymous founders. That was his definition of humility that I had read, that humility is becoming who you are rather than who you think you should be. Uh-huh. And that means living within limits and boundaries. And no, I can't go to the poker game I'm going to drink. No, I can't go to Las Vegas. I'm going to wind up acting out sexually or, you know, no, I, I don't get to talk anymore about sexual remarks about women in front of my family. It hurts my daughters. Right. Um, so I live within, I would live within boundaries so that I have integrity and that my priorities change to where I want to build relationships with people I care about rather than create uh, shame or discomfort that get in the way of those relationships. So your boundaries are critical in that. Living within boundaries are critical. And yes, a a lot of addicts who grew up in a system that they felt restricted in will experience boundaries as too restrictive. But the truth of the matter is, is that if, if, for example, you're an overeater and chocolate cake causes you to binge, you learn to live without chocolate cake. You know, you you don't learn to eat it and hope that you don't binge. You learn to say, geez, you know, I'm... I've got to find a substitute because chocolate cake's my weakness. I'm sure once I eat it, I'm I'm gone, right? Yeah. So uh, I I don't mean to use food addiction. It's not a great metaphor, but it, it gets the point across, right? Yeah. So y- your primary goal for healing adult children of sex addicts is would would you say it's to unburden the shame of 
of care uh, of of that sexual addiction? I mean, how how would you describe the primary goal? Yeah, I'd say that's that's right on. I I think it's I think it's our attempt to to begin to uh, unburden the generations of adults who carry the shame that's both implicit and explicit in these sexually addicted systems and begin to free themselves from that so they don't pass it on to their kids or another generation. So it begins to arrest the generational link between sexual shame and addiction. So what would you recommend, Ken, in regards to, uh, well, a couple of things. One, one is, um, do you, you know, I think a big part of this is just moving out of the denial of this and being able to speak into it. Absolutely. That's the first step of recovery is to break denial, look at it for what it is, go be around people who uh, can help you tell the truth to themselves, good therapists and uh, recovery friends and so forth. So, so would this be would you would this be something you recommend you go back to your family system and say I'm not going to hold this secret anymore or you know? Well, I think I think that I think that can be and in some instances should be a step, but I think it should be handled carefully. I I think you know I, in many ways you know I did this with my my mother and I was carrying my father's sexual secrets and I told her and. She, of course, knew of everything, but it was important that I do that for me. But I had a, I had to work into that. I had to talk about it first. I had to deal with it in therapy first. So I recommend the conservative, I don't mean politically, but conservative approach, better to proceed cautiously and uh, sort of get this stuff out and make sure that your relationship to these secrets is clear to you so that if you need to unburden yourself, you're you're doing you're going to your parent to unburden you rather than change them. Yeah. So in other words, you're not not having these huge expectations that they're going to come back with this empathetic, compassionate. No, no, no. Especially if you're using it as a hammer on them, right? And but no, which doesn't mean you should soft pedal it, but it might mean that um, you you want to be political, diplomatic rather, in how you deliver. Look, at I need to talk to you about something. You may not. You know, you, yeah. you may not be comfortable with this, but it's important to me. I want to know if you'll hear me. Yeah. It's about some of the past behavior I witnessed and knew about growing up. Yeah. You So you, you invite your parent into a choice. They may tell you no, and you say that's too bad because that's going to get in the way of our relationship going forward. Right. So you need at each step to have a position. That's why you need to be the recovering adult child needs to be clear about where he or she stands because if they're met with resistance, they need to have the next position on there. Yeah, yeah. In their back pocket. One, one last thing is, um, what would you recommend for couples that are in recovery for sex addiction right now that have young kids at home or adolescents at home? So, you know, I, I think I think it's a, it's a little... I mean, the general rule of thumb is, is that you unburden your children and you say, mommy and daddy are dealing with things. Daddy's dealing with something that um, hurt mommy. And, you know, there's some general guidelines. There's some colleagues who have some good guidelines around that. Um, Dr. Piper is one. I know she has some good stuff. Um, And so I think that it, it varies 
And, and then I think the addict's role is to unburden their children at appropriate ages. So we have we had a man in, in his agreement with his wife when they divorced, agreed to tell their daughter um, his his basically his story or the generalities of it, which included uh, sex workers and affairs when she was older and out of college so that she wouldn't be contaminated. And the mother, to her credit, and uh, waited it out and did not use his behavior as a weapon. And that daughter was able to bond appropriately romantically. But then she got the story when she could handle it. So mm -hmm. I think the timing of it should be important. I think the and I think the addict also has a responsibility as the kids grow, say, look at now that you know my story, I see that, you know, some of this has impacted you. I'm really sorry. You know, it's not fair to you. You deserve a good relationship. I just want you to know that that that's on me. So I think there needs to be an ongoing recognition. I don't mean a subjugation, you know, proning oneself to your kid all the time, yeah. but a but a but a wise moment in time where you unburden your child and adult children. In terms of uh, so, I think in that way, amends have to be ongoing. I don't think they're a one-time affair. Yeah. Uh, which I think the field has treated like, you know, we'll make amends and we'll move on. And, you know, and I think it's important to have a formal amends, but I think it's important to continue uh, looking for opportunities to unburden your children. Um, and then um, I, I think for partners, I think, um, and obviously to get into their recovery and then for partners to get into the recovery and also to back away as, as unfair as it seems to, um, using the children in any way as leverage or weaponizing the secrets or the sexual behavior against the addict. And, and to take responsibility and say, look, I should not have told you what was going on. It must have felt icky or burdensome. And, you know, that was for your father to tell you, uh, I did that out of my own discomfort. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and so I hope you'll kind of let that go um, and not take that, you know, so again, you have a, you, you have a recognition that I have a responsibility too. So I think both the addict and the partner should look at their responsibility compassionately um, and responsibly to their children and adult children. And then disclosure should happen at age appropriate times and should only be shared. Some of the, so here, and it's a little bit uncertain to me, the data, a little bit I have of a hundred people, some of the people reported I was glad to hear it. Finally, it made sense to me what was going on. Other of the adult children says, I wish I would have never known. Mm. Mm. So it's a mixed bag. And I don't, I didn't ask enough of those questions to, to glean from the data pool what the real deal is. So I think that remains to be answered. Uh, uh. I think that's a work in progress. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, an answer of uh, an answer in progress. Yes. Well, this is really good work. You know, I remember I was on a podcast with Mark, who, who obviously you knew. Um, mm -hmm. I remember one time when we were in a podcast, and he, he said he wished he would have invested in his kids' therapy rather than their their college tuition. <laughs> you know, and and so that's great. That's great. That's the, that's a mar that's a Markism. It is a Markism, and and I love that because I think it's true. You know, I often 
you know, tell clients that we work with that, you know, none of us were raised by Jesus and we're not Jesus. So we're going to hurt our kids, maybe not intentionally, but our ability to be humble around that and be able to, you know, mm -hmm. talk to our kids about that. I think, you know, is an important part of this, you know, Absolutely. If, if you're a parent that, you know, that did struggle with a sexual addiction over the spouse and did have impact in your kids, it's just a, you know, I think maybe one of the best things you can do is take that humble place of being able to talk with your kids about that. I think so. I, I think so. And I think if you keep it mindful about the uh, about the child being the beneficiary rather than you, then you'll you'll be you'll be mindful about how much or how what part to share. And I think there is something to be said for sharing the dark side, if you will, and saying, you know, I made some mistakes. And I think there is a wisdom in that that you can pass on for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, joining us again today. Yeah, um, it's pleasure, just, Mark. Really I, I, I'm thinking of Mark. I keep wanting to call you Mark. I, I just feel like when I talk to you, I I can feel Mark. I mean, I, I feel <laughs> like you know you have a you don't you don't look like him. You're but you 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 have a presence like you have a wonderful presence like him. A, 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 uh, genuineness about you that I've always, always liked about Mark. So, Jim, I know who you are. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Mark, when I meet with you. I, I know Mark is always on my mind. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not offended by you calling me Mark. We miss him. Oh, good. A lot. Good. So, <laughs> thanks again for joining us. All right, Jim. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, thank you for joining us today on the Faithful and True podcast. Jim Farm and Ken Adams. Uh, once again, have had a great conversation, and I'm sure that uh, you're all intrigued and will want to uh, get Ken Adams' new book, A Light in the Dark, The Hidden Legacy of Adult Children of Sex Addicts. Uh, see the description down below uh, for more information about the book and about Ken Adams. And until then, we hope that this coming week for you is going to be a week that's filled with many blessings and with great vision.